Let's pray. Our Lord, we really are grateful for this morning that you've given us. We're especially grateful for your word that you have uh, provided for us. Uh, we confess that it is through your word that we're able to know your son, and he is worth knowing. And so I pray, Lord, would you make your word clearer to us this morning so that in hearing your word that we would know your son more clearly and that in knowing him more deeply that our lives would look more like him. It is a, a, an amazing, wonderful thing to think that you do that through your word. And we gather as people who need that to be done in our lives. And so we trust in you for all of that. And we know that you are able, I pray that you would. <clears throat> it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, I don't know about you, uh, but I can't think of many more things in life that I enjoy more uh, than uh, a good meal with good company, right? I mean, if you ask me, right, uh, would you plan your uh, perfect evening, your ideal evening? I think it would have uh, three main ingredients. It would have good food. Uh, it would have good drink and good conversation, right? Give me those three things, and I am set. Like, I'm literally, I'm telling you, if I did that every single night of my life, for the rest of my life, it would never get old for me, right? And that's because I think that the dinner table is sort of the, the perfect sit setting for every single situation in your life. I mean, think about your own dinner table. I mean, your, your physical dinner table, your kitchen table or your dining table, whatever it might be. Think about the, the types of experiences that you have had around that physical piece of furniture. Joyful things, right? I mean, there have been times where we sat around that table and, and got to know someone that we didn't know. Or, or maybe we got together around that table and we celebrated a birthday and it was a joyful thing. Even difficult things, right? Maybe we sit around that table and we're trying to think through uh, what steps we should take concerning our future. What should we do? What decisions should we make? Or maybe you sat around that table uh, in a conversation about trying to reconcile a relationship that's just broken. And that was a, a hard conversation. You see, the, the kitchen table has overheard all sorts of conversations. You see, that's because meals are that valuable. Meals are that valuable. They're that central to our lives. And you see, this isn't some sort of uh, new phenomenon, right? It's not the invention of the, the foodie generation that takes pictures of every single meal that you take and put it on Instagram, right? It's not our idea. You know, meals have been important for as long as we can remember. In fact, I find this to be fascinating. I find it to be fascinating that one of the ways that Jesus actually describes himself is like this. He says that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, he says this about himself. He says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Consider that for a moment, right? Of all the things that Jesus came to do here on earth, important things, weighty things, Consider that he says somewhere on the top of that list is also included sitting down, 
eating and drinking with people. How interesting is that, right? Jesus came to accomplish a very weighty and important thing, and yet on the top of his list was also eating with people. In fact, some saw that as a problem. I think next week or a couple of weeks from now, we'll actually see some people respond to that and say, you know what, why was Jesus always eating and drinking? Right? I mean, we're fasting, and this guy's having banquets left and right. And the thing is, you can see why they would say that, right? One scholar, when he was looking at the, the Gospel of Luke, and you should do that too at some point, just read through the Gospel of Luke. He says, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always either going to a meal, he's either at a meal, or he is coming from a meal. When you, look at the, when you look at it, when you read through the chapters, you will see it, it, it's true, right? Jesus is eating with people all the time. You see him eating with a Pharisee named Simon. He eats with Mary and Martha. He sits down and eats with Zacchaeus. He eats with his disciples, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. He isn't, uh, he's, he's passionate and constantly eating with people. And see, what you realize quickly about this is, these meals weren't a break from ministry for Jesus. It was actually central to it. You see, Jesus used the, the dining table, that physical table, purposefully, right? He used it to build relationships. He, he used it to challenge people's thinking. He used it to change someone's life. I mean, it would be no exaggeration to say that these were meals with eternal implications that he's having. You see, we're studying one of those meals together this morning. It's a meal that, as modern readers, there's a chance that we can read this meal and read about this meal and easily miss the significance of this meal. But you see, if we took a moment, right, to consider who it was that was sitting around this table with Jesus, we would actually see that this dinner is nothing short of stunning. Right? If we took a look, moment to consider who it is that's sitting around this table, we would see that this dinner was nothing short of stunning. Well, we'll actually get to the dinner in a moment, but let's first consider how this all came about. How did it actually reach this table? And you see, it actually began earlier that day. We're looking at Mark chapter 2, 13 to 17. is found on page 837 of the Bible, so I want to uh, in invite you to come and open up the Bible with me. We're looking at chapter 2, and first at verse 13. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember Pastor Jay. He spoke to us about this paralytic, right, who wanted to come and to see Jesus. And this guy was so determined to meet Jesus that we read that his friends literally cut open the roof and drop him from the top, right? And so Jesus is seeing this. He described it last week as, you know, you're seeing, uh, you know, uh, things dropping from the ceiling because they're cutting into the roof. And so Jesus sees this and he sees their faith and he forgives them and, and, and then he ultimately will heal this man. And so you're watching this happen, and there's all sorts of responses in that room. On, on one side of the room, in one corner, you see the, the scribes and the, the Pharisees, and it says that they're furious. They're furious because 
They can't believe that Jesus would say what he did and, and do what he did. They can't believe it. And so they're furious. And on the other corner, you see that there are crowds of people. And they're amazed. I mean, the, the scripture says that they're glorifying God based off of what they just saw. They're even saying things like, we've never seen anything like this before. Right? This was new to them. They couldn't make sense of it. You see, a lot was going on just a couple of verses earlier. A lot of chaos. And, and it was quite the scene. And then after all of that commotion, we see in verse 13, Jesus retreating. And it says that he goes out beside the sea. Now, that should be predictable for you by now. If you've been here and you've been reading with us, that should be predictable for you because he did that a lot. He would go to the sea a lot. And it says that crowds were following him. Now, if you've been reading along with us, you should say that's predictable because that's happened a lot. A lot of people have been following him. And then it says that he was teaching them. Again, if you've been following along, you should say that's, that's predictable. This is the fifth time that's been said of Jesus in this passage. In chapter 1, it says this is the very reason why he came. He came that he would be able to teach them. And so you see, in just in verse 13, we see a lot of predictable moments, right? Typical moments. But what happens next is something that's completely out of left field. You see, no one, and I really do mean that, no one would have predicted what would happen next. Because it was a, a conversation that would lead to a conversion. It was a, a conversation that would lead to a conversion of someone that no one would have considered. And I mean that. I want you to hear that, right? No one no one in their wildest dreams would have ever guessed that that guy would become a follower of Jesus. You see, it's the, it's the true story. It's the true story of a man named Levi. A man named Levi who was a tax collector. So let's take a look and figure out more about this man's life. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now again, if you've been with us, you read that sentence, and it probably doesn't sound very different than what we read in chapter 1. If you remember when we read about how Jesus called Simon and Andrew and James and John, it seems like the, the order of events seems very predictable and identical to that, right? Jesus says, follow me. And these guys, these fishermen, they drop everything and follow him. But you see, the, the emphasis of this verse isn't so much on the method of Jesus' calling. Instead, it's on the man that he calls. Because you see, in all honesty, most people in Capernaum didn't even consider Levi to be a man. They would have other titles for him, uh, much less flattering titles for him. Like they would call him a traitor. Some would say he's a disgrace. Some folks would say he's a thief. But you see, for us, as modern readers, that's not so obvious for us to see, right? We read this and we say, listen, I get it, right? 
no one likes the IRS, right? No one likes a tax collector. I mean, if you're here and you're an IRS agent, I'm sorry, no one likes you, right? That's just how it is. But is he really that bad? Is he really that bad? You see, he is. And I don't want to exaggerate. Levi would honestly be one of the most unlikely people to become a disciple of Jesus in Capernaum. And that's because of what it meant to be a tax collector. Let me try to explain this a little bit. You see, at that time, right, Israel was being dominated by Rome, by the Roman Empire. And I really do mean they were being dominated by the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire had made life extremely difficult for the Israelites. A lot of people were going through poverty of various kinds. They were struggling in a bunch of different ways. And the primary reason why life was difficult for the Israelites in Israel was because of the way that Rome was taxing them. You see, they were taxing them on everything you could imagine. And so what you were seeing was large chunks of Israel's wealth and resources were now being shipped off to the Roman Empire. And so all of a sudden, Israel is getting poorer and weaker, and Rome is getting richer and stronger. But here's the thing, right? It's not just that they did these horrible things. It's also how they did it that was so appalling. Let me explain. See, the, the year is around 80-30 or so, okay? And so there aren't a bunch of uh, complex systems in place, right? There isn't a, a very efficient way to do things. You, you can't pay your taxes online, or you can't have your taxes deducted from your paycheck automatically. So the, the question is, how did the government do it, right? How did they collect this tax? We see this is how they did it. At, at the beginning of every year, the Roman government would say this. They would say, okay, this year we want to raise, let's just say, a million dollars from Israel, right? They want to raise a million dollars in taxes from Israel. And so what would happen? Well, a bunch of people would put in bids, and they would say, so some people would say, listen, I'm going to raise $100,000 of that million dollars. And other people would say, well, I'm going to raise 200000 And what would happen is, if you win that bid, you're now responsible for raising that money. Now, here's the thing, right? The Roman government doesn't care how you get that money. They don't care who you take it from. At the end of the day, they just want their money. They have a million dollars they're trying to make off of Israel. These bidders are going to get that money for them. And so what do the bidders do, right? The bidders understand this. They know how the system works. So they'll usually say this. They'll say, listen, I'm expected to raise $100,000. I'm going to raise $150,000. I'm going to give the Roman government what they're expecting, and I'm going to bank the rest of those $50,000 for myself. I'm going to take that money. And so what they'll do is they'll do all sorts of things to try to raise that money. So, for example, they'll, they'll say, David, you owe us 20% tax, right? And then they'll look over and so say, they'll say, Sarah, how about you, you owe 40% tax? And so nobody knew the, the rules or the legality or anything like that, and so everybody just did what they were supposed to do. They gave what they asked. And then they would randomly tax on everything, right? You have a donkey, you're getting taxed, right? Uh, or you're going to send mail out to somebody, you're going to get taxed. Or, or you have fish in your, in your property, well, you're going to get taxed, right? Well, it turns out Levi is one of those bidders. 
he has promised to help the Roman government reach their goal. Now, if you're hearing me, you should still say, I get it, right? But still, why does that make him so bad? Right? I'm sure there is much worse things being done by much more evil people, right? Why is this so bad? Well, you see, I think a big clue is given to us and found in his name. You see, this is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. This is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. You see, that's a Hebrew name, which means that this is a Jewish man. Consider that, right? This is a Jewish man who is stealing money from Jewish people in order to make himself and the Roman Empire rich. Consider that, right? He is aiding the enemy. The same people who are making their lives a living hell, he is putting money into their pockets. You know, it, it's sort of hard to find a modern-day uh, analogy or an equivalent uh, to what we're saying here, but it's sort of like this. It's sort of like if you figured out that your next-door neighbor, right, an American-born U.S. citizen, is collecting money from all the other American-born people or U.S. citizens, and he's taking this money and he's sending it overseas to fund ISIS. Your neighbor, the guy who lives right next to you, who's supposed to be on your side, right? It's your Americans together. He's helping the very ones that are seeking to destroy you. And what's worse, it's legal, right? There's nothing you can do about it, right? There's no one you can call, not an authority you can tell. It happens, and you know it's happening, and there's nothing you can do about it. Do you feel that? Let me ask you a question. If that was true of your neighbor, how would you look at that person? How would you consider that person? Well, you see, that's how people looked at Levi. He's a traitor, right? He's a thief. He's an outcast. And here's what you need to realize, right? This was his choice. He chose to do that. In fact, he put in a bid to get this job. He knew exactly what he was doing. Remember, uh, just a last, the chapter before this, right? We saw Jesus helping another outcast who was a leper. But you see, the, the difference between the leper and, and Levi was that leprosy is a disease, Right? He became an outcast by no decision of his own. He, he was maybe born with leprosy or he developed leprosy, and so now he's an outcast, but he didn't do anything. He became a leper. But with Levi, he chose to be a traitor. It was his decision, and because of that, no one could stand him. And I really do mean he was an outcast, right? You see, when you're a Jew and you're a tax collector, you're excommunicated from the synagogue. The religious leaders want nothing to do with you. In fact, they despise tax collectors so much that they would even teach this. They would say, listen, lying is wrong, right? Lying is a sin unless you're lying to a tax collector. 
that's not even a joke. I'm not just making that up. That's, that's, that was a real understanding in that community to say lying is wrong unless, and here's the exception, if you're lying to a tax collector. In that case, you've got to do what you've got to do, right? That was sort of the understanding. That's how much tax collectors were hated. Because, you see, Levi, in being a tax collector, is essentially saying this. He's saying, I don't care about my people. He's saying, I don't care about their God. Right? I don't care about what's right or wrong. All I care about is my wallet. I'm trying to get rich through this thing. You know, he's the one Jew. You know, we just prayed this a few moments ago. He's the one Jew who honestly couldn't pray, may your kingdom come. You know why? Because his very profession is actively working against the establishment of that kingdom. Consider that. Everyone's waiting for this Messiah to come and to overthrow the powers that are oppressing us. They're praying and asking that God would do that finally. And then you have Levi who's filling the pockets of the one who's oppressing them. How could that man say, may your kingdom come? He's actively fighting against it. And so you imagine it's not even just the, the religious leaders that hate you. You imagine your, your Jewish family probably doesn't want you around either, right? Think about it. If you found out that your son was supporting ISIS, you're probably not whipping out pictures of him, right, and showing your friends. You're probably not inviting him to Thanksgiving dinner. No, instead, he's a, he's a disgrace to your family. He's the cause of much shame for your family. And you see, that's exactly why these two words uttered by Jesus would be absolutely stunning. These two words uttered by Jesus would be absolutely stunning because it was to this social and religious outcast that Jesus came and he said, follow me. He said, follow me. There's the same man that everyone else was now avoiding, despised. You made caveats in the law because of this man. Jesus comes up to him and he says, follow me. How does Levi respond? He rose and followed him. You know, take a moment to consider this, this situation for a second, right? You wonder, what were the people thinking at that point? The crowds that are watching this happening, what are they possibly thinking at that point? What exactly does Jesus think that he's doing? What does he think that he's doing? You know, teaching the crowds, great, right? Wonderful, you're a great teacher. Heal the leper, fine. He didn't do anything. But call a tax collector? I, I thought the Messiah was supposed to save us from our enemies, not partner with them. What does Jesus think he's doing? Now, if that wasn't stunning enough for these people, 
But what happens next probably blows their mind. Look at verse 15. It says, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So get this, right? Everything about Levi's life is starting to change. Because of Jesus' invitation and because of his response, his life is no longer going to be the same. He's no longer going to be a tax collector. Tomorrow morning, consider, he won't wake up and go back and sit in that tax booth again. The one thing, the primary thing, the sole thing that he was being identified by until this point is no longer true. He went from being an outcast to now a follower of Jesus. His life has changed like that. And so what does Levi do? What else would you do, right? You celebrate. You celebrate. He throws a huge party. He plans a great feast at his house in honor of Jesus. He wants to show gratitude to Jesus for what he has done for him. Not only that, he wants his friends to know about Jesus, to know the one that has done everything for him. And look at that. Look at the verse. It says, his house is overflowing with friends, tax collectors, and sinners of every kind. Listen, it should be of no surprise that Levi's friends are similar to him. Right? That shouldn't surprise us. Remember, everyone else has dismissed him. Everyone else has dismissed him and avoided him. This was his crew now. These were his people. Other tax collectors and a variety of sinners. That evening, the place was popping with all kinds of questionable people. You consider that. And you imagine, right? This was not some sort of quiet dinner. They're not sitting around the table kind of softly speaking to each other. You imagine there are cups clanking, right? There are plates being passed from place to place, it's filled with joy and laughter. I imagine the story of when Jesus came to call Levi and how that all went about was told a million times and it never got old. They heard it over and over again. Some people said it this way, some people, and, and it just was said over and over and they recalled that moment and it never got old. Everyone's enjoying themselves. There's great food and great drink and great conversation going on at this meal. You know what we should do? We should pause for a moment. And we should step back and consider the scene that is right before us. Because when we do, you realize something. You see, Jesus, Jesus came to forgive sin. And we would all say yes. But you need to realize that he also came to pursue sinners. He came... He came to identify with and relentlessly pursue sinners. You see, if Jesus only came to forgive sin, if he just came to simply solve the problem of sin, then he could have skipped all of this stuff. He didn't have to sit down with anyone, right? He could have just went straight to the cross and the problem would have been solved. But you see, what you see over and over again, time and time again, is that whether it's the leper or the paralytic or the disciples 
or sinners of every stripe and kind is that he actually loves sinners. He loves sinners. And he relentlessly pursues sinners. Do you see that? You see, it's true. He came to be the remedy for sin. But would you hear me? He also came to be the friend of sinners. The vilest, most, most appalling of sinners to relentlessly and even individually call them to follow him. And so the crowd stood outside of the house and they saw all of this happening and they were speechless. They were stunned. Jesus is parting it up with tax collectors and sinners, the most unsavory of people. And you imagine, by this time, the religious leaders have seen enough. Look at verse 16. It says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why? Why? What's up with that? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? You see, if you grew up in the church, right? If you grew up in the church, there's a chance that every time you hear uh, scribe or Pharisee, you automatically just start booing in your mind, right? You're sort of conditioned to think that way. We're automatically conditioned to, to see them as being the bad guys. But you see, back then, it wasn't that way. If we simply read it that way, we will misunderstand the story. Because you see, Pharisees in that time, they were the good guys, right? They're the pious ones. They're ordained rabbis. They led people. They taught people from the scriptures. And they were careful. I mean, careful about the law of God. They were careful about Jewish traditions. They were careful to observe everything, laws and traditions, perfectly. In fact, they had counted. They had counted and they figured out there was 613 commandments and laws in the Old Testament, right? And they gave their lives to trying to keep every one of them. They really did. They literally tried to give their life to perfectly obeying these laws. I mean, these were people who were revered and respected, good and pious men. And so because you know that, right, when you consider what the focus of their lives have been, you can see why it is that they would be so bothered by what they're seeing. Remember, Jesus is being called rabbi by now. Jesus is being called teacher He's been seen as, as an authority in the scriptures. If you remember from chapter 1, it says that when they heard him teach, they said, what is this teaching? I've never heard of such teaching before with such authority, even greater than the scribes. He's gaining a following, right? He's healing and casting out demons. Some are even considering whether or not this guy is the Messiah. And then, bam. He's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And you see, you know why that would be especially bothersome for the Pharisees? 
Because you see, the commands that these Pharisees would often be most particular about was about food and eating. Everything from whether cups and plates were being washed correctly, they cared about that. To whether foods that were proper were being eaten, they, they cared about that. To whether or not this food was being properly cooked, they cared about that. I mean, they were so careful about this stuff that they wouldn't just allow themselves to go and eat with anyone. I mean, they wanted to keep the law and, and not have any risk of breaking the law so much that they would only eat at other Pharisees' homes because they know these guys care about this stuff. They didn't want to have any chance of breaking any law. And then you have Rabbi Jesus. <laughs> Rabbi Jesus is reclining at the sinner's house the most vilest of sinners. Not only that, he's surrounded by sinners, tax collectors and sinners of every kind. And you imagine he's enjoying this home-cooked meal made by the most unclean of hands. And so the Pharisees are furious. So they say to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. Pause for a moment. It's just interesting to see the way that the tension between scribes and Pharisees and Jesus is starting to escalate, right? In the beginning of chapter 2, you see Jesus when he heals a paralytic. It says that the, the Pharisees see this happen and, and they're starting to question, but the questioning is sort of internal. They have questions within themselves. Now, Jesus knows what's going on, but the, it's, it's going on, is brewing inside of them. Now you see them and they're publicly questioning Jesus. They're vocalizing their problems with this guy, the things that are bothering them. In fact, if you turn a page to the next chapter, you're literally going to see them getting together to try to figure out how to destroy Jesus. That's the wording that they use. They're so fed up with this guy, they're going to figure it out. They're not just bothered by him. They're not just even vocalizing about this. Now they're trying to figure out how to destroy this man. And we're only going to be up to chapter 3 by then. You see, the tension, the anger, and the hatred against Jesus is quickly escalating. Well, listen to how Jesus responds to their questioning. Verse 17, it says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, one commentator said of verse 17, he said, no statement of Jesus in the Gospels is more profound than this one. No statement in, in the Gospels is more profound than this one. So I imagine it's important that we get this right. So listen again to what Jesus says. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I think it's important that we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. You see, Jesus is making a, a, an ironical statement, right? He's targeting the, the false thinking of the Pharisees. You see, there aren't actually two groups of people. Uh, spiritually speaking, we don't classify some people as being well and then some people as being sick. No, in reality, everyone is sick. Everyone is sick. 
No one is doing well. But the difference is that some know that they're sick and some think that they're actually great. Let me say that differently, right? Spiritually speaking, there aren't sinful people and righteous people. No, everyone is sinful. The difference is that some know that they're sinful and others pretend to be righteous. And Jesus is saying this. Jesus is saying, I came to call sinners. I came to call sinners. I came to call those who know that they are sinners. To call those who know that they are sick. I came to call sinners so I must have contact with sinners. I came to call sinners so I must have contact with sinners. Listen, it's just like how a doctor exists to serve sick people. And because that's true, a doctor must have contact with sick people in order to serve them. Makes sense, right? If, if a doctor refused to be around sick people, right? If he or she said, listen, they must be well before I come and see them, that would be absurd. That would be absurd. You would say, doc, listen, you don't understand who you are. You don't understand who you are. You don't understand what you're called to do. And you see, that was the problem with the Pharisees as well. You would think, right, that if a rabbi were to spend time with anyone, if a rabbi were to have a meal with anyone, it would be with those who are living in greatest contradiction to the truth. You wouldn't criticize someone who did that, right? I mean, no one would say to a doctor, you spend too much time with sick people, right? No one would say that to a doctor. No, in fact, you would criticize them if they didn't do that. We well, see, that's why the accusation of the Pharisees is just so absurd. They are accusing Jesus of doing the very thing that they should have been doing, pursuing and calling sinners to repentance. You see, what Jesus was doing at Levi's house that night was the very thing that he came to do. He came to call sinners. And ironically, it would be the very thing that makes the religious leaders want to put Jesus to death. But praise be to God, Jesus wasn't trying to avoid death. No, Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. He came to die so that sinners of all stripes and of all kinds may find forgiveness for sin and friendship with Jesus. You see, through dinner at Levi's house, Jesus demonstrates what his life and his mission are actually all about. So the question is, what do we do with this today? I just have two words, one for the unbeliever, if you're not a Christian here, and one for the Christian. If you're here and you're not a Christian, would you see today that Jesus came to call sinners just like you? 
Now listen, I may not know anything about your life, right? I don't know what you have done or, or the things that you have left undone. You may have done the most vilest of things. As you consider your own life, you consider what your hands have done. As you consider what your mouth has spoken, what your mind has thought, you may have done the vilest of things. And my prayer is, would you find encouragement this morning in Levi's story, who is the vilest of sinners? Or would you find encouragement in the Apostle Paul's story? If you don't know it, we can tell you who is the most undeserving of sinners. Or the stories of many other people in the Bible. Or even the stories of those who are in this room. Would you find encouragement in knowing that he came for you? for the sick, for the sinful. He loves sinners. He loves sinners. He came to relentlessly pursue sinners. And so would you know you're in good company this morning because sitting all around you are people that have no business being followers of Christ. But you see, it's for people just like that that Christ came. So would you drop everything and follow him Today, I promise you, you are not too sick or too sinful to be saved. In fact, it's those who realize that they're too sick to fix themselves that need a doctor. Right? When do you call the doctor? When you realize you can't do anything more about it, then you make that call. I pray this morning, would you realize that your sinfulness is so deep, there's nothing you can do about it. You need to call the great physician, and he is inviting you to come and find healing in him and to follow him. Would you do that even today? And if you are here and you're a Christian, can I ask you, are you a friend of sinners? And I mean to even literally ask you this, right? Who do you find around your dining table? In the last week, in the last month, in the last year, in the last five years, who do you literally find around your dining table? And please don't let that just be a question that passes over you. Is it simply those who are well? Because I think sometimes we can convince ourselves that it's easier, right? That it's better to be with those who are well because it's really hard to be with those who are sick, with those who are sinful, those who think differently than you do, or who would do things that you would never even dream about doing. Or, or people who value things that are different than what you value. And so we can convince ourselves that, that people need to get well before they dine with us. If that's true, I want to remind you today of who you are. You are a sinner. You were a sinner, the sickest of sinners, that Jesus called by name. And not because you were good enough, but because you were sick enough. He came for you. He relentlessly pursued you. 
And because that's true, I want to remind you of your calling. You're called to be a friend of sinners. The most sinful of sinners. To literally, and I mean that, to literally share, share meals and the gospel with sinners. Let me ask you. Is there anyone in your life that you have written off as being too sinful? And again, let that not be a hypothetical question. Consider right now in your life, is there anyone in your life that you have written off as just being too sinful? They're just, they're just too sick. They're far beyond the possibility for God to save. Is there anyone like that? Well, then may Levi's story and even your own story be instructive to you. It is the most vilest of sinners that Jesus came to pursue and to ultimately call his friends. And so may God help us to be more like Jesus even today. Let's pray.